Hi, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. James Hu is the medical director for the sarcoma program of USC and is considered one of the nation's experts in the disease. He's also a clinical associate professor of medicine at USC's Keck School of Medicine, the co-director of the Adolescent and Young Adult Program of USC in Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and a retired Army colonel and former commander of a combat support hospital. We spoke to him about the results of his study on the relationship between leadership characteristics and burnout, transformational leadership, how his recently launched USC leadership program is different, and one aside here, we had a a technical glitch in our recording, and we hope to have him back to give us some more details on how his program is working out. So let's have a listen. Dr. James Hu, thanks so much for joining us. It has been such a pleasure to read some of your work, and it's an equal pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I'd like to start by just asking you a little bit about where you came from and how you got here. Well, thank you, Simon and Wendy, for having me here. And um, uh, so how did I get here? Where am I from? So that's a long story. And um, (laughs) so I'm actually from, uh, I was born in Taiwan, but I came here very early in life when I was two and uh, grew up here in uh, L.A. Uh, in fact, right across the that's East L.A. for uh, those of you that know something about L.A. <laughs> but there's a west side and the east side, and I grew up on the east side. In fact, right across the street from this medical center here at USC, uh, right here in a, in a uh, suburb or a, a township called uh, Boyle Heights. And... Um, so, yeah, I, I got here through an inv- invitation from Wendy after we were introduced by, I don't know if I'm stealing your thunder, Wendy, but uh, uh, we were introduced by, uh, by Joe Caravallo, General Caravallo, who was a classmate of mine back in uh, residency uh, in internal medicine. And uh, Joe, uh, General Caravallo went into um, cardiology and eventually became um, uh, really a commander uh, of a major uh, organization in the army, and um, and uh, we just got to talking. I, I basically uh, revisited him and um, uh, basically about just kind of catching up and and seeing what he was doing, and uh, and he was asking me about what I was doing. And, and I told him I was doing a dissertation on burnout and leadership. And he thought that was very interesting. And long story short, that led me to Wendy. And uh, we've just kind of hit it off from there. (laughs) So uh, give us a little bit about your military background. So uh, I was, um, let's see, I um, went to the Uniform Services University of Health Sciences uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, I enrolled there in uh, shall I say, 1983, and uh, Ronald Reagan was our graduation speaker. So if you guys remember Ronald <laughs> Reagan. <laughs> we do. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I started off at USIS, and I did most of my uh, medical training, actually, at, uh, uh, in, the, in the military. Uh, and I got out in 2000, and um, I, so I spent 17 years wearing the uniform, and uh, basically uh, uh, got out and um, went into the reserves. 
I think in the reserves is where I kind of drank the Kool-Aid because uh, we were uh, uh, we were deploying a lot, as you recall and as you know, between 2000 and uh, and uh, you know really since we withdrew from the Middle East and um, uh, and so yeah, so really I never deployed once in the 17 years active, but ironically I deployed uh, four times while I was a reserve person. <laughs> reserve, oh my gosh. Actually commander. So yeah, go figure. It just kind of worked out that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you had 17 years of military medicine. You've had a little bit more than that in civilian medicine. And I wonder what you see as the similarities or the differences between practices. So I'm a medical oncologist by trade, so that's where my experience comes from. Um, I can tell you that the, uh, you know, aside from frequent deployments and um, changes of duty station and, you know, maybe some role confusion within a hospital because of rank, right, and, and, and medical experience, you know, in reality, a lot of the challenges that we face are very similar. Um, and, um, you know, some of the, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, bureaucratic issues that we face, um, the idea that, you know, we might be undervalued and underappreciated as physicians, um, you know, uh, electronic medical record frustrations, um, you know, lack of admin support, uh, you know, excessive demands by hospital administration, you know, we share a lot of those common challenges, and so, in reality, I, I feel like um, we have a lot more in common than we do, uh, you know, have different or have differences. So, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think the personnel, I think the populations are very similar. They're very uh, heterogeneous. Um, or I think our staff is very similar. The nurses and the administrative staff are very similar. And I think the doctors are, are very similar. I think maybe one difference is that um, I think maybe the physicians and the providers in the military might be a little younger uh, than uh, than those at an academic institution where I am right now at USC, University mm-hmm. of Southern California. Yeah. So, James, you wrote a paper that I've since sent to quite a number of people titled Physician Burnout, Evidence That Leadership Behaviors Make a Difference. Tell us how you got interested in leadership. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, you know, I would say I've always been interested in leadership. I've always been very interested in um, how leaders uh, obtain objectives that can be very challenging. Um, I think the biggest reason why I got into it was the fact that um, here at USC, um, I did notice that there was a lot of folks that were leaving USC, a lot of uh, faculty that were leaving. And um, in fact, I can relate a story where um, probably in 2016 or 2017, there was a really uh, well-respected faculty member that left here um, to go to uh, an an adjacent institution. And, um, you know, I remember asking, uh, talking to her and asking her, 
and why she was leaving. And of course, she would never really relate, I, I think, the truth, really. She's trying to be very, um, you know, um, uh, very respectful <laughs> about it, right, clinical about it. And so, um, so you know, the first thing I did was I went to my leaders right here at the institution and I said, hey, you know, this person may be leaving here, so you got to watch out for it. This is a, this is an issue. And, um, and, you know, one of the responses I got back was, well, you know, let's, she's already started the ball rolling. Let's just have her, you know, go to this other institution. Let's, let's see if we can match the offer. I was going, well, that's one way of pursuing it, I guess, you know, <laughs> trying to match the offer. And so, um, you know, long story short, that didn't work. Um, mm. So even though we, I don't know if we matched the offer or not, but it sounded like we were attempting to. Hmm. And what I realized then was that, you know, physicians aren't really motivated by just compensation. It's a lot more than just that, you know. And as I started reading more about um, you know, why physicians leave, um, it's really complex. You know, you know, part of it is compensation, but a lot of it is just recognition, appreciation, growth, you know, those sorts of things. And, and really... It's the environment that sort of shapes, you know, why people stay or why people go. And, um, and so that's what really got me into sort of this formal, um, you know, journey into leadership. And uh, now, just keep in mind, though, I, I also commanded a, um, you know, combat support hospital up until this point. And so, you know, um, as Wendy knows, I, I went to the, the war college you know, I went to the uh, Command General Staff College and the Captain's Career Course, which are three sort of milestone courses that the institution of the military makes you go to as you go up in rank. And so I thought that it was really interesting uh, to sort of compare the different cultures of an academic institution and, uh, and a military organization. And so, yeah, all of those reasons kind of piqued my interest in this whole issue of leadership. And and outcomes such as uh, keeping physicians in place. So one of the really interesting things that I, I hope you can explain or help listeners understand is that in the military, my understanding is that every time you increase your rank, every time you're promoted, you go to a new set of leadership trainings and have a new set of skills that you should be developing. And is that accurate? Could you describe that a little bit? Yeah. Well, so I would say that, so as many in the military know, that there is tactical leadership, there's uh, operational leadership, and then there's strategic leadership. And I think the captain's career course aligned with that. And so uh, when you become a, uh, when you go from captain to major, for example, um, even the doctors go to captain's career course. And, uh, and that's where you learn tactical leadership. And, you know, what's interesting is as a physician, <laughs> I didn't know anything about tactics. And uh, although they got me up there, you know, with a stick and a map showing where the troops should be deployed, I didn't know what that guy was doing. But I was relying on my fellow officers to kind of show me what to do, right? Mm -hmm. But that was sort of the quick tactical leadership uh, education that we got. And then the operational part, they teach you how to be a, a, a staff member. And so basically operations. So they teach you how to be a 
HR person, for example, and, uh, and what we know, what we call an S1 or a G1 in personnel, right. uh, an operations and planning person, what we call the G3 or the S3 in the military. But in the civilian world or the business world, they call it operations and planning. Um, and uh, also, they they teach you how to be a, a, a logistics officer, a logistics and finance officer. Um, and in the civilian world, that's just known as finance and budget and things like that, right? And so, you know, there's a lot of similarity. In fact, you know, when you start reading about, um, you know, Commander General Staff College, all that stuff started with the Prussian General Staff back in, you know, the 1850s, 1860s. <laughs> And then the business folks just kind of adopted it, you know, uh, you know, Frederick Taylorism for the manufacturing floor sort of uh, commandeered that, if you will, or at least adapted it to the business world. So there's a lot of similarity between the military and the business world, which we know as leadership today. And of course, the strategic uh, area is all about, you know, understanding uh, the interests of your uh you know, of your nation, of your organization, and sort of developing a, a strategic appraisal of that, and really using a lot of your, I, I guess, indirect leadership skills, not tactical leadership skills, but, you know, understanding the strategic environment and developing, you know, various lines of operation to achieve their strategic objectives. So it's a, sort of a different sort of framework, if you will, of, of leadership. Hmm. Yeah, and as you're heading towards the general officer, it's called a general officer because you know all the different roles, right? Absolutely. Your, your knowledge is very general, but it's also been increasingly specific or detailed as you get closer to that general officer role. You're learning more and more expertise in military conduct, for example. Yes, and, and absolutely. As you, as you rise to the ranks, as you mentioned, alluded to, Wendy, is, uh, you know, a general officer is expected to be a general officer. You're supposed to know something about everything. And in fact, if, you know, for example, if I'm a medical corps officer, uh, I take off my, my medical corps insignia when you become uh, an 07, right? Right. And you are no longer, uh, you know, a medical corps officer. You are now a general officer, if you will. I'm curious, James, there is a little bit of a contrast with the non-military world that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the military, it's a fairly ordered process where you go from rank to rank to rank and you get taught things between ranks where that's necessary. Am I right in saying that outside of the military, you can kind of jump across ranks and you can make your way into certain roles without necessarily having that formalized teaching? Uh, yes, um, I, I would. I think that's accurate, Simon. Um you know, we're not required to take any leadership courses um, in the academic medical center, which I'm familiar mm -hmm. with. Uh, and, and I think it's a cultural thing. You know, I, you know, uh, it, it's also born out of uh, maybe necessity as well. Uh, I remember uh, we brought one of our generals from the military to talk to the academic leaders here, which is very fascinating, actually. And um when, you know, we had all the chairs around and we had um, our CEO there and we brought one of our general officers who I won't name, but um, uh, he came out there and he was talking about leadership and leadership training and how it's important. And, uh, you know, one of the chairs said, well, you know, that's great in the military world, 
in the civilian world, you know, we gotta, we can't do that. We have to earn, we have to earn a living, you know, we have to. <laughs> and, um, and so I, the, the general officer that was here kind of came back and said, well, I respect that, but uh, really, if you value leadership, then, you know, I think there's a way to make that happen. And so, yeah. so it, it really is kind of a cultural issue. And, um, and so it's kind of where you put your priorities, right? In the military and, and you know, and, and, and to, uh, you know, to, um, to that point, I would say that, um, you know, in the military, they grew out of a culture where it's a necessity that you have leadership, right? Mm -hmm. Because your life and your, 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 your people's lives, your subordinates' lives, your soldiers' lives are at stake. Whereas uh, I think in the academic medicine world, although your patients' lives are at stake, um, the other folks in your life is really not at stake. So it's not really a survival issue so much here in the academic world. Uh, whereas it's a survival issue born out of the military right. and its history, right? Yeah, maybe you can pretend it doesn't matter as much, even though it probably does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think somewhere in there is a, is a nice uh, sort of medium or compromise. Uh, but uh, no, suffice it to say, I I think leadership is is everything of an organization. And, um, you know, without it, uh, I, I just can't imagine it could be successful. Yeah. So I'm so interested in your discussion of leadership styles, uh, particularly discussion of transactional and transformational leadership styles and the relationship of those styles to success in leading. Could you talk to us a little bit about those leadership styles? Sure. Um, so all this was kind of born out of a dissertation that I did for my doctorate in, in leadership. Um, and so... Uh, there's a lot of different leadership theories out there. And um, the transformational leadership theory is what I based uh, my model on for, uh, for my dissertation. So the, the, the textbook definition of transformational leadership is uh, basically getting, um, getting your followers to do more than is expected. So those are the behaviors that lead to tapping into that autonomous motivation of your soldiers, followers, faculty to do more than is expected. Whereas, and, and it's generally you're tapping into the internal motivations. Whereas transactional leadership is more born of external motivations to get uh, behaviors that are expected. So an example of that would be, uh, let's say the performance review. So I sit down, and this is something that I think a lot of um, managers and leaders are, are used to and familiar with, in that they sit down with, let's say, a subordinate, a faculty member, and they go over their annual review. And they say, oh, okay, you've met uh, 3,000 RVUs for this year. So you met that metric, check. Um, Oh yeah, uh, you've done seven lectures for the fellows. Oh great, check. Uh, okay, and you got uh, you know one you know regional or national lecture that you gave. Check. Okay, you've met all the expectations. Thank you very much, and um, we'll see you later. So that's basically the you know the performance review. 
Now, transformational leadership would be something a little bit different than that. So that's where you kind of, uh, so for example, individualized consideration, which is one uh, a category of transformational leadership. By the way, the transformational leaderships are these four eyes. Uh, there's uh, inspirational motivation, which I, which I describe as talking the talk. Mm-hmm. Um, there's idealized influence, which is modeling, and basically what I say, is, in short, walking the walk. Um, there's uh, intellectual stimulation, which is all about creativity and innovation, right? Those behaviors. And, um, and then there's individualized consideration, where I'm really interested in your personal growth, your promotion, and um, you know, your success as an individual. And so those are the four eyes that lead to um, subordinates doing more than is expected. Yeah, and, sort of. It, it, it sounds like the perfect institution, right? When you've got a boss who's got those qualities, you say, <laughs> "How great must this be?" <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, and so, you know, and, and the literature, the physician literature on leadership is just chock full of transformational leadership stuff, right? But you know, when I look around here, um, you know, I don't see any of that going on. But that's not that's not bad. Okay, that's okay because. You know, transactional leadership is okay, too. So um, I know people try to make the distinction between management uh, and and leadership. But in reality, management is a form of leadership. And so at least that's um, that's really what the full range of leadership model is. There is uh, basically goes from laissez-faire, which I say um, um, there's uh, management by exception passive. There's management by exception active, which is sort of that micromanager, right? Um, there's contingent reward, which is a transactional leadership behavior. So you give me 10% more RVUs, I'll give you 10% more pay, okay? Um, and then there's the four eyes, the transformational leadership, where you're tapping into their intrinsic motivation. And actually, in the paper that you read, Simon, what was very interesting was that uh, I used the full range of leadership model and correlated it with burnout, right? And what I found was... Um, So the transformational leadership behaviors that we measured correlated with less burnout, okay? But contingent reward, a transactional leadership behavior actually correlated with less burnout as well. Why do you think that is? Because it was was not intuitive to me as I was reading that paper. It it was not intuitive to me either. It was very um, surprising to me, Uh, especially with a group of such autonomously motivated folks like physicians, right? Uh, well, you know, I think there's a lot of literature out there that says that um, contingent reward is actually uh, more of a, it, it can be both a transactional and it can actually lead to a transformational leadership type of relationship because if you continue like over time to reward this person, they, they meet that 10% and then you give them that 10% raise, they start trusting you. And you start developing this trusting relationship with them that you're going to meet uh, those um, contingent rewards that you said that that you were going to meet. And so that sort of builds this sort of relationship where they trust you, even though it is that external reward. And so, in fact, um, you know, people that look at discriminant validity out there um, of all the different behaviors, they've kind of lumped in individualized consideration and contingent reward as into one category that are very closely related, that actually um, is, is a good, if you will, uh, behavior. 
Um, so, yeah, it, it kind of flies in the face, but the, the, the thought is that uh, over time, uh, through the meeting of promises, uh, maybe the aligning of values, um, you're able to uh, sort of get that person from a contingent reward into the transformational leadership domain uh, through individualized consideration, if you will. So anyway, there's a, there's a whole body of literature that, that sort of lumps those two together as being very similar. So this is super interesting. So James, when, when we talk about these different styles, I can imagine that they may contribute to or potentially mitigate clinician distress and that that's one of the reasons why you started doing the work that you're doing. And I wonder if you could just talk with us about what you found as far as how leadership styles interact with clinician distress. Yeah, uh, so that's a good question. What I found in the dissertation, um, and this is this is rather interesting. So I had a, a quantitative, this is a mixed method study. Um, there was a quantitative component, uh, which Simon read, and there was also a qualitative component. And so uh, the qualitative component consisted of 10 random interviews of our faculty. Now, keep in mind, we have, you know, 1,145 faculty, that, uh, uh, not counting pediatrics. Um, and, um, and we have 17 clinical departments. And so this was just a random sample of 10, and I don't even know who they were. And so uh, I had an independent interviewer interview them for about 45 minutes, 30 minutes to 45 minutes, and ask them various questions about burnout. And so from that quality, those qualitative interviews, I basically found... What was very interesting was that uh, COVID-19 was not a contributor to burnout. So uh, that was sort of a, an outlier, a little bit of an outlier. In fact, uh, in the interviews, they would say things like, well, you know, COVID actually cured my burnout because I actually had a mission and right, I, yeah. I knew what I was doing, right? And um, right. We should hear that all the time. <laughs> That's a common, <laughs> common theme. Uh, mm -hmm. I had a place to go. And then when COVID went away, all the same stuff came back. All the old environmental right. work environment issues came back, right? And some of them came back worse. And so it magnified what people were seeing. It magnified. And so we had like a, well, anyway, so that resulted, well, anyway, so that was one thing that was interesting. Uh, another thing that I found in response to a question, the question was, with uh, in the context of burnout, what are some of the leadership behaviors that you witnessed your leaders displaying? And, you know, I think a lot of them fell into, well, they would send me to a wellness course, right, or an individual-based wellness course or, uh, or something like that. Um, or they would say something like, uh, well, they would, uh, I think they cared, but they would have more meetings and would have more get togethers and things like that. And they seemed to appreciate that. Um, but what was really interesting was that, uh, over half of them mentioned that, well, they do nothing. There was, uh, there's, this is a fixable problem but at a much higher level, 
or they would say, I think they care, but there's nothing they can do about it. Or they would say something like, um, well, I think they care, but they never get to the root cause. And so I sort of lumped all that, those responses into a lack of agency. Okay. And so, um, this lack of agency, meaning that the, the faculty or the followers, but those being led, uh, just felt like there was nothing the, their leaders can do about it. And so that led to a lot of their, well, at least these interviews uh, led to a lot of their issues with, with burnout and behaviors of their leaders. And so what I took from that was... And keep in mind, I didn't interview the leaders. I didn't get into the, the depths of the reasons why they didn't have that agency. I mean, was it because it was a lack of knowledge? Was it a, a lack of motivation, right, for, for not doing it? Uh, or is it, um, you know, or is it just organizational factors that are so prohibitive that, you know, it's, it's you know, it's fruitless to even try to address these problems. And so uh, I, I didn't address that. But what I took away from that was that um, a lot of our leaders just maybe don't have the, the understanding, uh, the knowledge part of it, um, to really manage the environment. And, um, and also what I got was, you know, it basically came down to resources and recognition, resources, recognition, and appreciation. Right. And so a lot of what they would say was, oh, yeah, I, I like the recognition part. Um, I like the appreciation part. And, you know, and some of them said, you know, I like the compensation part. Right. And so that all kind of tied into what I found in the quantitative part. Right. Compensation, contingent reward, uh, you know, recognition, which is, you know, a little bit of gratitude, maybe some individualized consideration. Um uh, appreciation, uh, you know, forming an environment of appreciation and um, uh, and recognition, you know, and also, you know, even values alignment. What what do we value as being uh, valuable enough to recognize, right? And so all those do kind of tie into my quantitative findings um, from the qualitative part that sort of embellished it a little bit. So, Wendy, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> um, Wendy, can you hear me? I think I lost you guys. <laughs> I'm not usually one to hold back when someone's looking for my input. Nope. This wasn't me being uncharacteristically restrained. It was that technical glitch we warned you about. We had so many more questions, but our connection with James cut out, and he couldn't hear us anymore. So we ended the conversation for now. And we'll pick it up again soon. So, Simon, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was how closely connected Doctor Who found the characteristics of a leader to be with symptoms of burnout. And I think after all of our conversations with clinicians on the front lines, that's not that much of a surprise, but it's really nice to see it laid out in quantifiable data. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have talked to a lot of people and, and heard these things, but yes, putting some numbers to it and actually putting some science to it, I think is important. I think interesting in what he was saying was how often 
the answers he got was, I think they care. I think my leaders really do care about this, but they lack the agency to do what's necessary or the problems at a higher level. And again, I think that's one thing that we hear a lot. It's not that people don't care. It's that these are really big problems and very difficult problems. Yeah. And I think the other poignant thing for me was when he said that knowing that your leadership was hearing what you were struggling with was not quite enough. What you had to know in order to avoid burnout or other types of distress was that they were acting on what they were hearing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really powerful as we start to think about solutions going forward. And, uh, you know, it's nice to see that one of those solutions may be about thinking about how intentional we have to be about our leadership, how intentional we have to be about uh, training people in these ways. For sure. Thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios, and our podcast coordinator is Ariel Morton. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at Fix Moral Injury, and our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes, so you can continue the conversation there. We'll also put a link to Dr. Who's paper in the show notes so you can read all about the findings that he had. And we love sharing these conversations with you, and the team works really hard to make it seem effortless. But in reality, each episode takes hours to create scheduling, recording, editing, posting, and all that costs money. So if you like what you hear and you appreciate the work we do, we would love to have your help. Please follow us with a link in the show notes to our website and consider making a donation there. Share episodes with friends and colleagues or post a link on social media. And if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, it makes it easier for other people to find us. Thanks for listening. And stay well. Stay well.